0: Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter number 7. Thank you again for being here today as we continue our series week 4 in our study. Let me mention to you uh, just briefly that we have a book that goes along with this study throughout the summer. And of course you're probably looking for something to do in the summer with all of your spare time, right? So a little summer reading assignment, uh, Real Christianity by Carrie Schmidt. And so this series is uh, following those chapters um and we're discussing these in our small groups after the morning service for about 30 or 40 minutes we've had some great small groups already in and around these and uh and it's been very very good uh very good even the conversations that have come up that have really challenged our thinking and caused us to evaluate things and so i hope that you'll pick up that book out in the lobby right in front of our grace resource center that's what grc stands for the cost is $10. You can also, from what I hear, find a good deal online for them used even cheaper. So whether you get it online used or whether you get it here new from us, um, make sure to pick that book up as what I'm touching upon today. I don't have time to touch upon every detail, and so this book will definitely help you as you walk through each week with us. And so we're on week four, chapter four, and ultimately all these chapters are based upon the Word of God. I like good books that lead me back to the book. How about you? Amen? Amen. I love a good book that leads me back to the book, and this is exactly what real Christianity does um, for us. And so today we're looking at this message, and that is relationship, not religion. And I've got a little illustration to start us off here today. There we go. How many of you know what that is? Alka-Seltzer. How many of you need one already today because you ate too much at breakfast? All right. Um, We are a lot like... uh, a lot of Christians, and I would say even us included, we're a lot like this Alka-Seltzer. We uh, fizz up for a little bit. It smells pretty good. We fizz up, and then we fizzle out. Isn't that true? How many of us know of people who got saved, and they fizz up for a short time and, and get very excited about their relationship with God for a few weeks, a few months, maybe a year or two? And then it seems like things fizzle out. And then, as I mentioned, if we're all honest, we could probably say that we've all been like this. We get very intense in our relationship with God, and and then it seems like things fizzle out. They lose their their punch, and that was fast. I didn't realize that that Alka-Seltzer would fizzle out that fast. Wow, it's already done. Why is it? that we are a lot like that Alka-Seltzer? How many of, us, how many of you would be honest enough to raise your hand and say, yep, I'm a lot like that, Pastor? <laughs> Why is that? I believe that what we're going to discover today in our study, I think this message today is going to challenge us to change our perspective from being pr- focused primarily on what we're doing to being focused primarily on whose we are And also in the message today, I think we will confront many unrealistic expectations that subtly get presented to us of what the Christian life is going to be like and how that doesn't align with what we actually experience. I think sometimes a lot of Christians have false expectations built, and then when they don't experience those false expectations, that's one of the reasons they fizzle out. I think these two words, relationship and religion, really cause a lot of uh, setting up for failure in the christian life and so the reality is is jesus promised to us life more abundant in him and today i believe we will discover the source from which this abundant life truly flows because you can't manufacture abundant life it's like the difference between a fake plant and a real plant fake plants look good and they stay looking good because they're fake but they're not real. Fake fruit looks good, but try to take a bite of it. How's that going to work? How many of you have ever been fooled by fake fruit? You picked it up, and you're like, oh, wax! (laughs) Took you a week to get that taste out of your mouth. And so we know the difference between veneer, surface fake, and something that's real. So where does, what's the source of abundant life in Christ? So my prayer today as we look at Romans 7 is that we would see this wrestling that Paul is going with. One of the writers of the New Testament, Paul was a believer in Christ. He certainly had an explosive beginning to his walk with Jesus. If, if you've studied the life of the Apostle Paul, what a, what a testimony of the power and the saving grace of God and the transforming power of the gospel of grace. And so Paul certainly had that kind of start to his life. But, but what was it? Because we're going to see here, Paul was struggling with fizzling out. And so, what I want us to see today is his struggle, but what I want you to see is the dichotomy between relationship and religion and how Paul finally realized that hope was found in a person, not a system. So, let's read Romans 7, starting in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So Paul's saying here that the Old Testament law given to us is good because it points out our need for rescue. But it's a doctor that can only diagnose. It can't deliver. Now, praise the Lord, we've got a great physician who can deliver, who can heal, who can touch us at the core of our being and transform us from the inside out. And we'll talk about that today. So Paul's just pointing out here that the system, the law, was good that it showed him and pointed out his sin. But look at verse 8. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. I, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. As you read that verse, you get this idea of Paul's wrestling. Paul's contending. There's a, there's a war going on. The things that he wants to do, he's not finding himself doing. You know, there's a new eye that he has. We're going to see that in a second. There's, there's a new eye. But, but the things that he doesn't want to do, he finds himself doing. Keep reading, verse 16. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Notice that. Paul's saying he has a new eye, and he got that new eye through a new birth. He became a new creation, and this is a fascinating study because what Paul's saying is, is yes, he still sins, but sin is no longer of him, meaning his nature. He's got a new nature, a new eye that doesn't want this sin, but there's still this power of sin working in him, thus the struggle. If he wasn't newly born again, there wouldn't be the struggle. All right, it's wrestling. Verse 18, for I know that in me, and then again he locates the battle, that is in my flesh, Mm. dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me. Where did he get that will? The Holy Spirit. But how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. There's again that wrestling. Have you been there before? Maybe you're there right now. (laughs) Good news, listen up you'll hear some good news and deliverance today. Verse 20, Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So he says almost the same exact thing here in verse 20 that he did in verse 17. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, this new I. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, which is in my body, the flesh. Oh, wretched man that I am. And that word wretched simply means miserable. Have you ever been miserable before? Even in your Christian life, you're fizzled out. You know that these things are true. You've experienced that at one point. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And, but now there's this miserableness. hmm He says, O wretched, O miserable man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Father, help us in these few short moments. We have a lot going on today in our uh, body here, in in, in the body of Christ, a lot to celebrate. But Father, I pray that in these next several minutes you would help us to focus on your word, speak in and through me, speak to our hearts and help us to see um, the nature of the struggle that Paul was dealing with here and to see the difference from how he started this passage to how he ended it. And may this be good news in life for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. So we read this passage and we see Paul laying out this issue here of this wrestling, this conflict, this struggle in his life. And so today the title of the message is Relationship, Not Religion. How is it that we don't end up like this Alka-Seltzer? How is it that we don't just fizzle out after a few short moments in our Christian life? How is it that we continue to grow and, and, and find that abundant life which isn't just a mirage on a dry desert? How is that? Three truths, and you can write these down in your notes there this morning they are provided for you. First of all, we have to establish a biblical framework. We have to establish a biblical framework. And to help me do this, we're going to be looking at two thoughts here in this biblical framework. Number one, the lens of religion. The lens of religion. And secondly, the lens of relationships. So go ahead and write those two down while I get my objects. Today is one of those heavy object lesson messages. Everybody say, ooh, all right, ah. All right, what is this? It's a ladder, pastor, of course. And uh, I've been thinking about Climbing that here, we'll see if that works out. But uh, so we have the lens of religion, the lens of religion. So we're talking about a biblical framework here and how we view our relationship with God. Did God save us to be plugged into a system where we do more, do better, try harder, be more faithful? And of course, we all want new behaviors. We're not against behaviors here. We want to see people live right and do right but it's the motivation of how we get there. So many times in Christianity, we get the cart before the horse. And so we're trying to compel the cart to move forward, but the horse is in the wrong place. And so in this issue of the lens of religion, there's two things that come to our mind as we we look at this issue of looking at our relationship with God through a religious framework, and that is ladders and rulers. What do I mean by that? In In the chapter that Carrie writes here in chapter four, He talks about these two concepts of ladders and rulers. Um, If you frame your Christianity through the lens of religion, then God will always seem distant. He will always seem impersonal to you. He will seem disconnected from your present pain. Your religion will be like a spiritual ladder that you attempt to climb to get closer to God, to be more accepted by Him, to be more liked by Him, to get your prayers heard better. Um, the higher you climb, the better you think you're doing and the better you feel like you're doing. But, of course, we all know how that climbing of the ladder works. And, and so what a lot of religions are about, even a lot of quote-unquote Christian religion, is about ladders. And maybe one, one, uh, one religion's ladder is this size. Maybe another religion's ladder is a 12-foot ladder. Maybe you got a religion over here that's only got a 4-foot ladder. But what do you do? On every single system of religion, you start to try to climb that ladder right? And, uh, and, and what happens is, is you're like, oh, yeah, I'm doing pretty good climbing the ladder. I'm doing what the pastor tells me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm doing my five-minute devos every day. But then there's someone else comes along and says, I'm doing 20-minute devos. How about you? And so what happens is, is we start to glory over our ladder climbing. But all of us know, all of us know very easily that, um, I'm going to try not to fall, that we fall, and here's the danger of living in a system of religion. The higher you climb, the harder the fall. Look at the passage that we just read and look at Paul's efforts to climb the ladder. The law is a ladder. The, the, the law, you know, if he followed the ten, good. You know, he didn't do this, he didn't do this, he made sure he did this. But but it seems like as you read this passage, the harder he tried to climb, the harder he fell to where. He was miserable. He was hopeless. You know why many people give up on Christianity? It's because they were told when they got saved that, yes, God saves you by grace, but then your growth in him is all based on your efforts. And what we forget is, as Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship. He actually is the one doing the work. Uh, Philippians 1.6, He which hath begun a good work in you, salvation, will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. And so what happens is, is a lot of times, religion is like climbing a ladder, and so we try harder. And so re- religion sends us on this never-ending, hopeless journey to climb to God. Another way that re- religion can be illustrated is with a ruler. With a ruler. We compare to each other by human math and and earthly standards. We make God very small in that effort because what we're saying is is that we can reduce holiness to a ruler. We can reduce God to a box. Um, And so holiness becomes attainable by our own individual efforts and means. And so we live with the belief that our self-achievement really does impress The God who speaks galaxies into existence. I'm always amazed at mankind's efforts to please God by trying to live up to a God who spoke galaxies into existence. Now, does it mean that we shouldn't strive to live? Well, what does that mean? Strive to live for God or strive or believe that you're abiding in the vine producing fruit? You see, there's two different ways of looking at it. In one, you produce fruit. In another, you're trying to gain work. So rulers. Modern religious thought is like a child who has proudly announced that he'll build a ladder or he has a ruler. And of course, there's, again, different debates over rulers. You got your big list. You got your small list. And everybody's measuring everybody and how they measure up. If your focus this morning is on someone else and how they're either measuring or not measuring up, you're missing the power of the gospel today. But that's our focus. Because why? Because man sees the outward appearance. But God looks on the heart. And God sees that ruler. God sees that ruler. He sees that ladder. He sees every ladder as a failure in understanding the difference. And this is exactly Paul's struggle. Why is Paul wrestling? Because Paul, when he got saved, he got saved by grace. But when the commandments came back... He misunderstood the meaning of them. He, he, uh, he thought that these were things he could do in his own strength by rowing harder. I've told you before that Christianity is, uh, a lot of people think that Christianity is like a rowboat. You get in the rowboat by grace, and then you've got to row really hard. And, and, of course, all the sermons seem to be built around you got to row this different way, or you got to row with more people, or you got to row faster or, or more in, in pace together. Christianity isn't a rowboat, it's a sailboat. And the work simply is setting the sail to catch the wind of grace, the wind of the gospel, and let it take you far further than your rowing ever could. See the difference? And so the reason that, that Paul fizzled out, the reason he was miserable, is because he wasn't looking at his relationship with God through the lens of relationship. He was looking at it here in Romans 7 through the lens of religion. And so what he needed to do was look at it through the lens of relationship. Notice how it starts out. So we read about the religious systems, the laws that Paul was trying to follow. And it seemed like the harder he tried to follow them, the the worse he failed. Notice the end of the passage again, verses 24 and 25. Look at that with me. Verses 24 and 25. He says, Oh, miserable man that I am. Who? Who? And so, see right here. He already is getting focused right. He is already changing his perspective. He doesn't ask, what shall deliver me from this death? He didn't ask, okay, what's a new, fancy, flashy uh, system that'll deliver me? He asked the right question, who shall deliver me? And he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul says here, it's not through the lens of religion that we live for God live from God abide in the vine it's through the lens of relationship so establishing this biblical framework to understand that God did not come with a book of rules but he came with a book revealing who he is desiring to have a relationship with us with us and so if you frame your Christianity through the lens of relationship which I believe is the biblical view then the truth makes you free and God comes near to you and invites you into a relationship with him that you could have never gained by climbing a ladder or by measuring up. And what's sad is, is so many Christians get saved and then they slip right into this religious system, just like Paul did, of trying to climb and try to measure. And no wonder they walk away from their faith because they get miserable, but they never turn to the Who? And if there's anything I can tell you that is a passion of my ministry here for as long as I draw breath is that we would see that this is a living, vibrant relationship and it's not primarily about a religious system. In fact, the word for religion in Latin is re-ligare, meaning to bind again. God did not save us to be bound again to things that we cannot do in our own strength. We could never do it. That's why Christ had to do it for us. And now through the new birth and the new covenant, he lives far higher than the law could ever take us. It's the law of love. It's simple. It's so simple. All those things are thrown in when it's about love, loving God and loving others. And so God's grace and goodness, what it does, when you really see the gospel for what it is, it crushes all the phony ladders. It snaps all the yardsticks. Grace brings God very near to us with open arms. The cross of Jesus bridges an immeasurable distance between sinful man and a holy God. God invites humanity to approach him boldly and to be adopted by him personally. Do we know this God in this way? I want you to look at some words that God uses throughout the New Testament to describe his relationship with you. New birth. New life, new creature, regeneration, justification, reconciliation, remission, propitiation. A lot of these are big words, but just follow. Ransom, salvation, redemption, forgiveness. In all of these words, whether we know the exact meanings of all of them or not, in all these words, none of these words, none of these words from the Bible imply self-effort on our part. They don't imply self-effort. They don't imply climbing a ladder. They don't imply measuring up to a measuring stick. All of them, all these words, characterize God coming down to us and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Like that word justification. It says in Romans 3 that God justifies the ungodly. We cannot justify ourselves. God forgives sin. We cannot forgive ourselves. God saves us. We cannot save ourselves. All these things imply that God is doing what we cannot, that God is rescuing us from the moment of our salvation to the moment that we arrive in heaven. We are in rescue mode, always dependent, always in the grip of grace, always broken until he completes the work that he has begun in you and me. And so once we're born into God's family, our Heavenly Father invites us to continue forward in this new, undeserved, extravagant relationship of grace and goodness. He invites us, catch this, to know Him, to love Him, to enjoy Him, and to yield to Him. Know, love, enjoy, yield. In grateful obedience... When God saves you, he does not save you to start trying to measure up to a stick or to climb a ladder. He saves you to rest at the foot of the cross and to know him, to enjoy him, to love him, and to yield to him in grateful obedience. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between looking at your spiritual life through the lens of religion or looking at it through the lens of relationship? I love how Carey says it in this chapter here on this commentary on this passage in Romans 7. He says this is a relationship of unconditional acceptance and absolute dependence. So powerful and so expressive of what our relationship with God is. God accepts us not because of any conditions that we deserve. We, we didn't earn an audience with God because of our measuring up or our climbing. Jesus is the one that earned us acceptance with God accepted in the beloved Ephesians 1 6 tells us and the beloved there is talking about Jesus he's God's beloved God's only beloved and so unconditional acceptance and then absolute dependence but here's the challenge and we see it with Paul here don't we the challenge is we get saved by grace and then we think it's our job to grow by grit No, we grow in grace. We're saved by grace and we grow in grace. But the temptation is, is we're like, well, God did so much for me, I want to do something for him. And that's not wrong either. As long as we don't let the do replace the done and what God did for us. Do you see the difference? It's subtle, but it makes all the difference in the world for whether we fizzle out or whether we go forward and keep Keep continuing. And so why do we struggle with embracing that Christianity is a relationship and not a religion? For, for, there's probably folks sitting here saying, ah, this sounds like he's just trying to preach a way for us just to do whatever we want. No, because when you really get the gospel and grace, it frees you to do what God wants because he's given you a new eye. You see, Paul knew there was a new part of him that didn't want this junk any longer. It's one of the greatest evidences of your salvation this morning is that there's a part of you that's miserable when you sin. You hate it. You know it's been there maybe for weeks, months, years. You want to be free from it. In fact, sadly, some people even consider taking their life because they're that miserable in their sin. Oh, don't do that. See that Christ has promised you life more abundant. Maybe you've just been hearing the wrong, the wrong message. Hmm. You see... The reason that we struggle with embracing that Christianity is a relationship and not a religion is because embracing it as a relationship involves humility and honesty. You know what it means to embrace Christianity as a relationship and not a religion? It means getting honest to say you're not really that good of a ladder climber as people think you are. You're not really measuring up as much as people think you are. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he confronted the Pharisees. They looked like they measured up. But boy, did he hammer them in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 with the Sermon on the Mount. You say that uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. I say if you've thought about it in your heart, you've already committed it. (laughs) Snap. You see? What was Jesus pointing out? He's pointing out, guys, stop playing the game. And what embracing the gospel and what Christ did for us as a relationship, it means for us to finally get honest and say, you know what, I'm not that good of a ladder climber anyway. I come to church and I put on this, this performance like I'm a good ladder climber, like I'm a good stick measure upper. So it involves that. You see, the system could never save us nor secure us. We aren't doing a great job of following a system anyway. Even if we were outwardly, we're totally bankrupt inwardly. And systems could never save us, nor can they ever satisfy the true thirst for our souls, nor can they shape and transform our lives. Systems only seek to control and conform but the Savior saves, inspires, motivates, and transforms. And folks, this is the difference. Hey, young people graduating today, this is the difference. I mean, some of y'all, you're uh, you know, moving away, you're going to be married soon, you're going to probably move to a different city. And when you're looking for a church, I want to encourage you, young people, to find a church that focuses on the relationship that really makes sure to keep your eyes focused on Christ and off of this stick and that ladder and that person. Oh, they're they're climbing the ladder really good. All that's bankrupt and it's a distraction and it brings us right back to Romans 7 and Paul in his misery fizzled out. So a biblical framework of understanding that our relationship with God is a relationship with a person, a who, and it's not about adopting or maintaining or conforming to a system. Number two, they're in your notes, clarifying expectations. These will go quick. Clarifying expectations. Number one, what do we expect from Jesus? You see, what happens is, is when we get saved, and if we're not careful even how we hear preachers preach certain things about the gospel, we think that, oh, when we get saved, we're going to be happy all the time. Happiness, you know, so we think that becoming a Christian should make us happy. Um... We also think that becoming a, a, a Christian is going to mean that we're going to have peace all the time. You know, there's going to be this internal sense of rest and stability, and we're going to not, not, not going to have any conflict, any wrestling, any struggling. Forgiveness, you know, uh, we're, 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 we're forgiven. That means that because we're forgiven, we're not going to struggle with, with our flesh anymore, and we're never going to sin again because we're forgiven. So we think that forgiveness of sin means that we have immediate power over sin. Now... The good news of the gospel. There is a new part of you that does, but we don't know it. And so we struggle with knowing. We struggle with repenting and changing our mind to the truth of what the gospel says. And so we hear about this new life, and we're like, man, I expected my new life to be easier than my old life. I thought when you got saved, everything was better. Huh. Eh. You've just entered into a war. When you trust Christ, you become Satan's enemy. You're now God's child. And so what we actually experience in Jesus is different than what we expected the Christian life was going to be like. We thought we were going to be happy. We thought we were going to be at peace. We thought that we were going to have immediate victory over all of our sin struggles. We thought that, uh, uh, we, uh, we thought that this new life was going to be easy and not hard. But then what we actually experience is this. Joy and hardness. Isn't that funny? How many of you know that, that that the Christian life is hard? How many of you know the Christian life can be hard? Raise your hand. But how many of you also know that the Christian life in the midst of that hardness can also be indescribably joyful? I've seen it. I've seen it in families' lives. I've seen people go through incredible hardness. And yet there's this joy that can't be robbed, We also experience peace in the midst of conflict. You see, biblical peace is not the absence of conflict. Biblical peace is peace through the conflict. And so that's what we experience, actually, is peace in the midst of conflict. The peace of God is with us at all times, even in the midst of some of our most serious storms. Peace in the midst of conflict. So there's this conflict going on. It says in Galatians 5, verse 17, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. So there was a war going on in Paul's life, a battle. But yet he says that the peace of God passes all understanding. So he was in this conflict, but he also had peace. Forgiveness and failure. We try and fail, and then because of our failures, our our conscience seeks to condemn us. Satan seeks to accuse us, but the Holy Spirit seeks to comfort and remind us of the finished work of the cross and his ongoing work of growth and transformation in our lives. And so, yes, we are forgiven of all of our sin because of the shed blood of Jesus, but yet we still struggle with failure. Why? Because we try to make the Christian life a religious system rather than a vibrant, growing relationship. That's what Paul did. Paul tried to enter him back into a system, and because of that, it stirred up sin in his life. And so when we come to know Christ, we have joy and hardness, peace and conflict, forgiveness and failure, but we also have answers, but yet in those answers, we get more questions. How many of you, when you got saved until today, you can say that, that in your life, uh, you actually have more questions now about God than you did when you, when you got saved? Anybody like that, like me? Oh man, the last six years of my life as I've dug into scripture and studied and grown, mm, I I say it like this. Many of you have heard me say this statement. The more I learn, the less I know, but the more at peace I am. How many of you have heard me say that statement before? Yeah, many of y'all have heard me. We've we've had conversations. How's that possible? It's only possible in knowing a person. There are so many things about God that I don't know. But I do know that he's good. I do know that he works all things together for good to them that love God. I do know that there is an end to this story that doesn't involve death forever, but involves life eternal for those who know him. And so Paul talks about this, this idea of how we, as, as we grow, we still have questions. He says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. For now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I also am known. So Paul says, listen, there's so many things I've yet to know. I'm limited in my knowledge, but I do know that I know him. And that was Paul's prayer, that I may know him in the power of resurrection. So I think part of the reason we fizzle out in life is because we set up wrong expectations, a lot like what Paul did, I think. Paul struggled with with wrong expectations, and then what he experienced didn't line up with what he expected. And so many times, that is the source of frustration, failure, and desperation in our life. Finally, we see finding freedom in biblical realities. Finding freedom in biblical realities. Why was Paul so miserable? Why was he struggling even more than what would have already been a reality based on the fact that we still live in a fallen world? I mean, there's a part of the fact that we're going to wrestle. Um, Ephesians 6 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and, and wickedness in high places. And so there is a wrestle that we'll always have against the world. But Paul's was increased because of this issue that he was slipping back into a system, and he lost sight of the Savior. He lost sight of the person. And so we see the change in verses 24 and 25 that I read to you earlier. O oh, wretched man that I am, who, yes, Paul, that's it, who it's about a relationship it's about knowing him loving him enjoying him and yielding to him and so the reality of the bible says that yes we are saved but we still struggle we still wrestle as i just mentioned to you ephesians 6 says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against the world the flesh and the devil these principalities that are at work against good and truth And so I love how the author says this. He says, we're journeying in safety to safety. We're safe, but we haven't arrived on shore yet. Arrival is certain, but the present is still boisterous and laden with conflict. So we're saved, but we will still wrestle in this life. We are dependent in every way. Many Christians see salvation as a faith decision, but then they see their spiritual growth, as I mentioned, as this do-it-yourself self-improvement project But God said, I saved you, and I'm also shaping you. You can't shape yourself. You couldn't save yourself. I'm doing both of those things. But some of us view God's grace like this delivery truck that drops off all the supplies that we need to then do it on our own. Again, that's missing exactly what Paul is addressing here, that it's not about us doing it. It's about Christ doing it in and through us. And so we are 100% dependent upon Jesus and his grace and his power before salvation, after salvation, and every moment of the journey until we see him. We are his workmanship. We are his good work. Even our obedient cooperation with the work he does in our lives as a response to his grace. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He provides the resources. He does the work. And because of that, he gets the glory. (laughs) and we're we're like thank you Jesus for what you've done for me and so the reality is is the Christian life is not hard it's impossible but all things are made possible through Christ and what he has done in and through us and so the Christian life is not about you trying harder it's actually about you growing and abiding it's a relationship not a religion it's a journey you take with God not a climb that you do for him It's an exercise in knowing him, not earning his attention or winning him. If you belong to Jesus, you have all of his heart, you have all of his love, you have all of his acceptance, and you always will. You could never earn any more than you already have. That's why God calls this grace, grace. And so we are unconditionally accepted by Jesus in Christ. I love this quote. The Christian life is a relationship of unconditional acceptance and absolute dependence. I said that earlier, and I want to say it again. This is the truth, and it's the truth that sets us free. My friends, religion leaves you out of breath. Frustrated, trying harder until you are just ready to give up. God seems far away. You don't measure up. You can't reach Him. And it seems like God has His arms folded saying, why can't you just get it together, buddy? But a relationship is totally different. It's the polar opposite. A relationship welcomes you, undeserving, into this close connection to God's heart and the embrace of His grace. By a new birth, you are loved. By grace, you are forgiven. By God's extravagant goodness and love, you are safe and secure in His arms. All of your righteousness has been removed, and you have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You're God's child, and nothing will ever change that. And so God invites us, if we are like this Alka-Seltzer, we get saved, we fizzle up, and then we fizzle out. You see, that's what Paul was struggling with. seems like the harder he tried, the quicker he fizzled out. And so, in this message today, I can't unpack everything that my heart wants to share with you. There's so much more, but this is literally why we're here as a church. To break you free from the systems that frustrate, that fail, that send you into a place of hopelessness, and you end up walking away from Christianity altogether because what you're rejecting is not the truth of the gospel. Satan is a master of creating lies around the truth. Why? Because he knows that if he can get you to believe the lie, he can keep you from the truth. And Jesus came in grace and truth. And he knew that if people could get the truth, it would set them free. And that is the challenge for us as we grow, as we understand this good news. Your relationship with God is about a relationship, not a religion. Let's pray together.